Good morning, Harvest. How are y'all? Good. Three goods and a great. I like it. Hey, my name's Kenan Vaughn. If I haven't met you, uh, one of the uh, elders and pastors here, and privilege of teaching God's Word this morning. We're going to be continuing in our uh, series in John. We have arrived at John chapter 20. If you happen to be new here, then um, wow, coming in at the culmination of this entire series, which happens to be a chapter that unveils the culmination of our faith. This chapter is on the resurrection. And so uh, normally, I suppose, our, in, our, in our church rhythm of teaching, we uh, teach one of the chapters out of one of the gospels that explicitly tells the story of the resurrection. That's pretty normal on Easter Sunday. And, uh, but every once in a while, it comes up. We, we teach expositorily. We take books of the Bible and teach through them. And every once in a while, it comes up in November. And so we've got Easter in November this morning, which kind of goes along with the Masters in November. So we're just all upside down. But I'll tell you what I do love about this is uh, it, 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 it was really fun for me to dwell on the resurrection this week. And it kind of made me realize how much, um, you know, I seasonally teach and think about the hope that's found in Christ at the resurrection. It really puts some wind in my sails in late March or April. I mean, but this is the epicenter of our faith. Man, this is our hope every single day. This is the the anchor of our, of our peace and, and the impartation of our joy. And really, this is the hope of a Christian every single day. And so I kind of like the fact that we have John 20 landing in November because I don't want this merely to be a springtime reality. Again, this is, this is a winter reality for the Christian. And in a, in a nation divided after an election, in the midst of a global pandemic, there's a lot of um, frustration. There's a lot of angst in the church. There's a lot of discouragement. I had two believers this week tell me they were depressed, uh, kind of on the front of the pandemic and the slowness of where things were and how it's affected. Like, I get it. I'm not a fan of, of, of the pandemic by any means. I'm looking forward to it being in our rearview mirror. Hope that's one day soon. But do we ever need to have resurrection hope in the midst of our circumstances? Boy, do we. And I don't want to wait till March to give you that hope, okay? So praise God that it is right here in uh, John 20. It's where we are. This is an incredible text. Um, this is my favorite of the four accounts of the resurrection, which, which dovetail and tell one story. They each give kind of some different details. I love this story because it, um, it, it kind of shines the light on or, or gives the most ink to Mary and Jesus and uh, kind of unveils the intimacy of their relationship and that story. I don't know why, it squeezes my heart in a unique way, her relationship with Jesus, and I think it's, uh, I think in, in many ways she's a type of a Christian, that we're meant to uh, experience Christ the way she does. And so there's something very powerful about this particular account. So if you're able to stand to your feet with me, I'm going to read the resurrection account in John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, we'll take this over a couple weeks. So today we'll do 1 through 18. And we'll pick it up uh, with his appearing to the disciples, verse 19 and following next week. So John chapter 20, this is the very word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. 
He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so good, and it is so life-giving, and it's, uh, it's necessary for our emotional and spiritual health in every way. It's the truth. It's the compass which guides us through life. Uh, it's the roadmap uh, which helps us to know how to get home as sojourners in this world. Lord, it presents the truth of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the only way to the Father, that eternal life is found in him. And all those truths rest on this truth, that he rose from the dead, that the grave could not hold him, that he's alive today, and that he turned Mary's hopelessness into hope. When she saw him, when she heard his voice, when she knew he was alive, when she was reminded of her stewardship as a herald of the gospel. And Lord, it's not meant to be just for Mary. Your resurrection is meant to breathe that truth and that hope in every one of our lives this day and every day that we're meant to be a people joyfully on mission, alive with the hope of Christ risen in our hearts. And so God, I pray that you would infuse that hope in us today. Even though today's a beautiful morning, it's kind of the entry into the dark days of winter, the long days or long nights. It's it's a time of pandemic, unlike anything I've ever seen or been through. It's a time of division in our nation, unlike anything I've ever seen or been through. It's easy to have our sights on that which is happening in our lives and those around us and to become discouraged, even depressed. And so, Lord, I pray the resurrection truth lays hold of our hearts today and changes us. Conform us into your very image. I must decrease, you must increase, Lord Jesus, even as I preach. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well... Again, John chooses in his, or is led in his writing, in his account, uh, to put uh, quite a bit of focus on the um, interaction between Mary and Jesus, and rightly so. Let me give you a little background on Mary, as she'll be kind of a central character, the most central outside of Jesus himself in this uh, gospel account of the resurrection. Mary, we explicitly see in Luke 8 that she was one who was possessed by demons. Seven demons possessed her. Mark tells us that, Luke tells us that. Seven demons. I uh, can only imagine the torment of being demon-possessed, period, much less possessed by seven demons. 
her life was lived completely in darkness. Uh, she was um, in torment. She was dejected. She was depressed. Uh, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he had a hold on her life. Uh, she didn't know what light was. She merely lived in darkness. It says that Jesus delivered her. He called those demons out. He freed her from her slavery to sin and Satan. And by the way, it's no different for any lost person than it was for Mary in this sense. Just because you're not necessarily um, possessed by demons, if you are not yet regenerated, if you've not been converted, if your eyes haven't been opened to the truth of Christ, if your heart hadn't been re-enlivened, if you haven't been, according to Jesus' own words to Nicodemus, born again, then the same is true, <laughs> that you live in darkness. You may not know it. Uh, you may be one of those in kind of the American cultural Christian way. Maybe it's less of a demon possession and more of a uh, overwhelmed with greed and worldly pursuits. And you keep thinking if you just climb the next hill, you'll find life. You get to the top of that one and realize that one, it. maybe it's this hill. And you're pursuing things of this world to satisfy this need, this insecurity, this desire in you to have a life that means something, that counts for something, that has a joy, that is not a mere fleeting happiness, that has a peace, that would pass understanding, that would stay with you, to have hope in something beyond this world. And you're always grasping without ever laying hold of. Unless Christ lays hold of you, that's your estate, man apart from God. Ask Solomon, the wisest man in the Bible, is there life under the sun in other words, if you have the culmination of everything you can get and not God, do you have anything? And Solomon says definitively, no. You're not going to have anything I didn't have. I had access to the kingdoms of man, the money, the prestige, the fame, the wisdom, the women, everything, and you will come up empty. You weren't created to be enlivened and sustained and, and uh, made to enjoy anything fully apart from God. In him, you find yourself. When you find him, you find you. You find satisfaction, and you're a worshiper, and you're sustained, fulfilled in that worship, and the good news is it's now and forever. Well, Mary's demon-possessed, seven demons, tormented, discouraged, depressed, dejected. Whatever your circumstances are right now that are troubling, I promise hers were worse. Matter of fact, let me go a step further. This part we're not sure of because in Luke, I talked about Luke 8. We are sure of her name in the account. In Luke 7, there's a story that many people think, many scholars think, is Mary. We're not sure. The same is true for this believer as is for Mary Magdalene. If this is not her, I kind of think it is based on the chronology of Luke 7, immediately following into Luke 8, where we're, where we're told Mary Magdalene now follows Jesus and gives up her possession. Well, Luke 7, if you know the story, it's Jesus invited to eat at a Pharisee's, Simon the Pharisee's house. He sits down and eats, and a woman from the streets, a prostitute, comes in. She pours the alabaster uh, jar of ointment on his feet. She uses her hair to wipe his feet. And there's this radical display of love and devotion. And it's right after he was on the streets and said, anyone who is tired and weary, come unto me. If you're thirsty, come to me. And, and she comes in a radically devoted kind of a way. And Simon thinks to himself, the Pharisee thinks to himself, man, if Jesus, only, if Jesus is really a prophet, he'd know who this woman is. And he would not let her be touching him. That's to like defile him. And the ironic thing is, Jesus, of course, is not merely the prophet, he's Messiah. He knows what Simon's thinking. So Simon didn't say that out loud, and Jesus responds to Simon's thought and says, hey, Simon, let me tell you a story on that note. If uh, you have a, a guy that's a massive debt and a guy's small debt, and, and the, um, the one they owe the debt to forgives both debts, which one will be uh, more grateful? 
Simon answers, well, the one that has the larger debt forgiven, he says, aha, she who's been forgiven much is going to love much. Simon, what's your problem? And Simon was thinking, if only you knew her, you wouldn't let her do that. No, no, no. This is the most beautiful picture. This is why Jesus came to heal the sick. This woman who had the burden of sin, who lived in darkness, when Jesus turned the lights on and she was saved, she couldn't help herself. It was an embarrassing thing to interrupt the party as the lowly woman, a prostitute, and to pour out your finest uh, good at his feet. She wasn't doing that to call attention to herself. She was doing it because she couldn't help it. It was her one chance to show her radical love for Christ who had saved her. Turn the page, Luke 8. He's now traveling. Mary Magdalene's with him. So we don't know if that was Mary Magdalene. If it was, it makes all the sense. If it wasn't, the same thing is true for both women. Radically saved out of the darkness into the light. Now, this is true of anyone who's been born again, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's own dear son. And I think this is why my heart loves this story so much. I resonate with John 20. Of all the resurrection accounts, it's not just about the fact that he's risen. It's about what that means in the lives of those who are fully his. Okay, so that's the backdrop on Mary. Mary Magdalene, she's from Magdala, northern city, a very common town, uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing town, nothing special about it, a little Galilean town. Her name, Mary, is the most common name in Jesus' day for a woman. It means obstinate, by the way. Don't know if there's any Marys out there, but I thought that was interesting. And, uh, and Mary of Magdala, she's got this center place in Jesus' life. She follows him from the time she's converted. She gives out of her own means to support uh, him in, in uh, the ministry of the gospel. She's there at his crucifixion. She's there at his resurrection. Mary is like a loyal, faithful presence. She won't leave Jesus' side. She loves him too much. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, we see in Luke's account that she was bringing spices to anoint his body. It was, it was like the way we would bring flowers to a graveside to um, uh, profess our love. It's to say, I love you to the person that we grieve the loss of. Well, she comes early. She comes in the dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, you could say, what ought she be thinking here? Well, if you've read the Gospels, John and Matthew, Mark, Luke, I, I, again, I had the privilege of spending a number of hours studying this this week, but I was reminded afresh of how many times Jesus told them, I think it was seven, that he told them, as Matthew 17, they're on their way to Jerusalem, Matthew 20 at the triumphal entry. I mean, he's telling them over and over, I am going to Jerusalem on this Passover feast to be given over to the hands of angry, sinful men. I, the Son of Man must be lifted up he must be crucified, and then I will rise again on the third day. I mean, he's called the shot again and again and again. And, and, and they were perplexed by this. Uh, they didn't know what to make of it, obviously, by the fact that when he was crucified, exactly as he said, you'd think third day they'd be out here in their little folding soccer chairs and their, you know, Starbucks and ready. <laughs> here it comes, like third day, rise from the dead. This is it. But they're not. We're going to see next week the disciples are locked in a room in fear of the Jews. Mary's coming expecting to find a dead body. Okay, so they don't, they don't understand. Um, and, and, that's, and by the way, you're going to see a myriad of errors here. I think there's precisely five misconceptions of Mary who loves Jesus. But she doesn't have all the theology of this straightened out. Not yet. So she comes. She thinks he'll be there. She, he's not. She sees that. And in verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple 
the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, and here's how, um, here's her second error. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him, <laughs> which is not true, of course, but it's all she can imagine. There's so, there's so many things to say here. Um, I, I hope the Lord helps me to say the right ones, but I, I um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is it, it, Christianity was not conceived in the minds of the early followers. They didn't come up with the idea of the resurrection. By their own account, they were fools. By their own account, they missed what he had declared would be true. They didn't believe. They were slow to believe. Now, once they saw the risen Christ, of course, this is going to change. But one apologetic of the Christian faith is they didn't come up with this stuff. They were dumbfounded by it. Christianity wasn't conceived in Mary's mind or Peter's mind or John's mind. It was in God's mind, Acts 2, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he would deliver Jesus over to the hands of sinners to be crucified, and then he would raise him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death. Hey, this is God's plan, not Mary's, not Peter's, God's. Another thing that uh, comes to mind here is that she thinks the body's been stolen. Why? Well, the, the hubbub from Friday night to today, everybody's worried that the disciples might try to steal the body, take the body um, uh, out of their affection for Jesus. You know, uh, the, the Jewish Pharisees were so worried about this, the Sanhedrin, they asked Pilate to post a guard, that's 16 soldiers, a Roman guard around the tomb to make sure the disciples don't come and take the body. So there's a guard, and Pilate acquiesces. That's why the angel in Luke, uh, when the angel appears in the earthquake, the, the, the soldiers fall as if dead. They're in a stupor as the, as the stone is rolled away. By the way, the stone's not rolled away for Jesus to get out. <laughs> the stone's rolled away so that Peter and John can get in and Mary can get in and see that he is risen. Okay, so uh, the disciples didn't take the body. They couldn't, not only could they not have, it's proved out by their lives. This is, again, one of the great apologetics of the Christian faith. There's a historically empty tomb historians write about there's an empty tomb. Nobody knows what to do with it. The Roman authorities, if they could have produced the body, of course they would have. They saw Christianity as a threat to the Roman kingdom. Uh, they couldn't. The, Jew, the Sanhedrin, my goodness, they were trying to kill Jesus. They didn't want the uh, story of him being risen from the dead to go any further. They would have loved to present the body had they been able to. The disciples, they couldn't have stolen the body. They will each one be martyred in gruesome ways 10 of the 11, John boiled alive and exiled to Patmos, exiled, beaten, tortured, martyred separately and individually for refusing to say that he didn't die and wasn't risen from the grave. But once they saw Jesus raised, once they touched the wounds, once they fellowshiped with him, they wouldn't deny that. You could take their lives, but they weren't going to deny that Jesus was alive. Men will die for what they believe is true. They will not die for what they know to be a lie, especially all 10 of the 11 separately and individually. They didn't take the body. So Mary has this misconception, guys, somebody took the body. Look what happens. So verse three, Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Verse four, I have no idea why this verse is here. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That would be something that I would write. Um, I, I can't see any theological or spiritual relevance to that, that text. I think G, uh, John just wanted to know that he's a little faster than Peter. All right? Maybe Peter's more of a distance man. I don't know. So um, I don't have much color to add there. But John gets there first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came, you can see huffing and puffing, he arrives, barreling down, following him, and he busts into the tomb. This is ready, ready, fire, aim, Peter. And he saw the linen cloth lying there as well. <laughs> Verse 7, he also saw the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. And the, and the scripture uh, takes time to uh, clarify, it was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, I can't be sure of the theological relevance of this either, but I think this does have some. Um, if you were to study this, you'll find there's, there's many uh, interpretations of this that have been held in church history, and nobody knows, nobody knows exactly why Jesus folded the face cloth, it's kind of like a handkerchief, folded it and laid it separate. He, these other clothes were like a, uh, like a cocoon with the, the body was gone. He had, he had passed through the clothes. This is not only a historical event, it's a supernatural meta- metaphysical event. He didn't get up as some mangled grave cloth wrapped man and fight his way out of the tomb. No, he, went, he passed through the clothes. But he takes time, he's not in a hurry either, he takes time and folds a face cloth and lays it over to the side. Nobody really is sure why. One of the things that I gravitate most towards, by the way, Peter sees it. John goes in and sees it, says specifically that John saw that and believed. There's something that's communicated that these guys understand. I think what's most likely is one of the traditions of that day, um, in Jesus' day, when a carpenter would go into a town and do a job. When the job was completely finished, the carpenter would go to the well in the city of the town and he would wash up. He would clean himself. Um, he'd clean his hands, clean his face. He would take out his kerchief. He would dry it up, and then he would fold it neatly, and he'd leave it at the foot of the town well, which was to say the job is finished. And uh, I can't be sure that's why Jesus did this. We, we still know. But it was, he was communicating something, the, the sovereignty over the resurrection, the order of it. The, um, there was no hurry of it, and he, he took time to fold the face cloth. He separated it from him. I think he was declaring, it is finished. John sees it, and it says right here, the other disciple, that's John, who reached the tomb first, thanks again for that, John, went in, he saw it, and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. Now, not only is it a historical event and a supernatural event, it's a biblical event. The Old and New Testament declare that the Messiah will come. He will be killed, Isaiah 53, and yet he will be raised, Psalm 16. The Holy One will not see decay or corruption. Daniel 7, he will return as one riding on the clouds of the sky. The, the, Messiah, the Messiah, when he comes, he is the atoning sacrifice for the people. Yes, but he is also a risen king who returns in glory. So he dies, but he dead, doesn't stay dead. He dies, but he can't be held down by death. Uh, I think of it this way. Um, the wages of sin are death. So uh, Paul writes in Romans 3, that's true. In other words, what all of us owe, but the wages we've earned with our sinfulness is death. That's the curse that you will, you eat of this tree, surely you will die. Death is the wage of sin. Ever since the first Adam forward, men die as a result of their sin. Until the second Adam comes, who is born of a virgin, doesn't have a sin nature, and has no sin of his own. Then when he dies, here's what happens. There's no sin for death to lay hold of. See, sin is how death grabs you and takes you down. Death holds you by your sin. It's the handles that, that death grabs. There's no handles. Jesus is like a cue ball, and death is, is a Velcro, and it has nothing to grab hold of. 
And so he burst forth from the grave. This is what's so powerful about the New Testament truth about a believer in Christ, one who has trusted on Christ for his or her salvation, that you're not anymore judged on your own merit, the handles that death can grab. You're hidden in Christ. His righteousness covers you. And so now death can only lay hold of you as much as it can lay hold of him. And Christ burst forth from the grave. That's unbelievable for you and I. By the way, I'm just going to read this to you because it's so powerful. I don't even want to sum it up. I want to read it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, we always talk about Jesus died for our salvation. He also rose for our salvation. If he hadn't arisen, his death would have been no good to us. He would have been merely a man who is a sinner dying for his sin, which is the, the estate of every fallen man. But the fact that he rose meant the proof, was the proof positive that his payment was good for our sin because he had no sin of his own. So 1 Corinthians 15 reads this way. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Understand, the forgiveness of sin is because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the death and the resurrection, where it is demonstrated and proved that the propitiation of God, the wrath of God towards the sin of man has been satisfied in the death of one who is holy, the righteous for the unrighteous. The grave couldn't hold him. His righteousness is demonstrated. And those that are in him by grace through faith are now saved and God is both just and justifier. He didn't wink at our sin, he dealt with it. He sent his beloved son, Jesus, paid the price for our sin. And we ain't saved unless he comes out of that grave. You can't just say, I'm going to die for you if you have your own sin that lays hold of you, that you're accountable for. He had no sin. So he who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it is. This is why Paul would end, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 saying, oh, uh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? He's taunting death. Anybody? He says, for the... Uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but praise be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're hidden in him. He is raised. First Corinthians 15 says he's the first fruits from the grave. So when you and I die, our spirit's with the Lord. And then do you know one day we will have a bodily resurrection just as Jesus did? This is crazy. First Thessalonians 4 describes it, 4, 19 and following. One day, and it and should we be alive when he comes again, it'll be that day. If not, the dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive when he comes will ascend to meet him in the clouds. But there will be a day where literally, if we're dead, our bodies are laid down, our spiritual with the Lord, our bodies will be raised to meet our spirits. I don't know exactly what this will look like, how old we'll all be, all the questions my kids ask me, I don't know. But I do know that we'll have a body that is no longer susceptible to the uh, uh, to the effects of sin and the curse. There'll be no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. We'll have a body we can eat, we can recognize each other. We will fellowship together with the Lord Jesus and all the saints for all of eternity. That's incredible news. How do we know that's true? Jesus rose from the dead bodily. 
and he was the first fruits. And what's true of him will be true of those who are hidden in him, of his followers. So, this is a biblical truth. It's historical, it's supernatural, it's biblical, it's essential, it's critical, it's the epicenter of our faith. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, which again, this would be kind of her third error. <laughs> Was what I just declared to you reason for you to mourn? No, it's reason that we dance in the streets. It's reason that we have hope in the midst of hopeless circumstances. It's reason that none of the circumstances of this world can overcome or overwhelm the hope that we have in Christ. Because he is risen, and yet she's weeping. And so, look what's going to happen. She stoops, she looks in the tomb, she sees two angels in white uh, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. By the way, in the Old Testament, you had to have two witnesses to attest to any fact. And so we have two angels, one at the head, one at the feet. And they're going to rebuke her. Woman, why are you weeping? In other words, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to mankind. That Messiah has come. The promised one, promised by God in the garden in Genesis 3. He has come. Why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, she, she doesn't understand what is true in the resurrection of Christ. By the way, I love this. Angels are at every point, every uh, critical point of Jesus' life and ministry career except for one. They are there at the annunciation of his coming, uh, even at the annunciation of John the Baptist's coming um, to Elizabeth, and then of his coming to Mary and then Joseph. They are there at his birth. They appear to the shepherds in the field to let them know he is here. They, um, they are there. It is temptation in Matthew 4. They are there in uh, Gethsemane to comfort him as he's going to have to drink the cup of judgment. They are there with him at the resurrection. They are there at the uh, ascension, escorting him into the heavenlies. And they are there at the second coming. They blow the trumpet, they announce his coming, and he comes on the clouds with the angels. Now, the only time the angels aren't at Christ's side in the critical points of his life and ministry, the only time he is alone is the crucifixion. There's no angels there to comfort him. In, Matthew, in Peter, when he drew his sword in Gethsemane and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus said, no, no, no. You don't have the kingdom in mind. Put your sword away. If I said the word, 12 legions of angels would be here. <laughs> the angels are not happy about what's happening when Jesus is being betrayed, falsely accused, beaten, tortured, and killed. Twelve legions, hands on the hilts of their swords, awaiting the commander's call. And Jesus won't give that call, and the Father says stop. He turns his back, and the Son will have three hours of darkness. He'll be alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, he will be completely apart from the Father's presence to endure the wrath of God that our sin earned. It's the only moment where he's not accompanied by angels. He is fully alone. And he will endure the shame. And he will die for our sin. Well, it's the resurrection. And you better believe the angels were there. And they're saying, woman, you don't need to be weeping right now. This is not a sad day. In fact, that's what's so ironic. Even his own followers thought, thought his missing body was the worst thing imaginable when really it's the greatest thing imaginable. 
that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And, and, and let, me, let me say, uh, uh, I, I love Mary's loyalty. She's like, hey, I don't know where they took him. Do you know where they've laid him? She's gonna ask uh, Jesus when she doesn't recognize who he is. Like, I just wanna know where the body is. Like, she's so, you just see in her this loyalty. She just won't leave him. She loves him and just wants to be with him. Even in her misconception and her misunderstanding, she wants to be with Jesus. The, the, the word was loyalty that kept coming to me this week in my study of Mary. The, the thing I love in her, she's not like this Americanized Christian that we've created. That is faithful in church, faithful to tithe, um, but it's all kind of like um, religiosity. You could be Simon the Pharisee and that could be true of you. In fact, it could be true for the very justification in your mind of your own sin or the proof to others that you are a spiritual or religious person. Like it's just kind of this thing you do, you tip your cap, you acknowledge Jesus. There's an identification with him, but not an intimacy with him. Mary does what she does from her deliverance that she just can't ever get over. I thought of the story or my relationship with this little dog um, uh, at the ranch named Shorty. Uh, It's my favorite dog that I've ever had, and you'll know why here in just a minute, but my grandmother and I were coming home one day from the grocery in Gonzales. If you know your Texas history, that's the come and get it town, and we were driving 12 miles to County Road uh, 421, where you kind of take a left and and head down the dirt roads until you ultimately get to the uh, front of our ranch, and and we were coming home one day, we're turning on County Road 421, and there was a little dog limping around, uh, front paw was crippled. And so it looked like a little puppy. So we stopped, we get out, and we throw this little dog in the back of the pickup, and we take him back to the house. And my grandmother kind of splints his leg. We give him some milk and then some water. He's kind of emaciated, a little fur ball, really funny-looking dog. Um, He he looked, his body looked like Lassie, you know, kind of like that border collie, except all kind of vanilla-colored, but then he had these little bitty short legs. So whatever kind of crossbreed he was, it was a border collie and something really small. And so he's just a little fur ball. And, um, and uh, we nursed him back to hell over the next week. And once we did, boy, he, something, I mean, this little dog, we didn't know where he came from, if he'd leave or whatever. But I mean, he waited for me. Every, every, we'd get up in the middle of the night, as you've heard me tell. We'd be out there about 5 a.m. to go to the chicken house. He was always waiting on the porch for me. Wouldn't leave until I came to the door. I think it's because I was the one that got out of the pickup, picked him up, put him in, took him home. At that point, he identified me as his rescuer. And so every morning he was waiting on me. We'd go down to the chicken house. He'd walk right by my side. My granddad and I thought it was the funniest thing. If my granddad went to the chicken house on the right and I went to the one on the left, he'd come with me. He had to stay at the door. Couldn't go in the house with the chickens. That would have been a disaster. So he had to wait. I'd be in there for an hour and a half. When I came out, he was sitting right where I left him. And then he'd hop along next to me as we went and uh, went up to the uh, stalls to feed the grain to the bulls, which for me was not that big a deal. For him, it was a death-defying act of loyalty. He was in there with three bulls who were, who were shaking their head at him and kicking at him, and he'd dodge in and out of them just to stay next to me as I put the grain in. And uh, he'd yip and zap and just fend for his life in there, but I couldn't keep him from me. And then I'd get on a tractor. We'd go out to bale hay. This little dog would run alongside the tractor right next to me, right beside the left wheel of my tractor. On left turns, I had to be careful not to kill Shorty. I'd always be hollering, I'm, get out of the way. But I, I, you couldn't. You could put him anywhere. He's going to find a way to you. And he was with me three hours, bailing hay. He'd pass out middle of the day after lunch. As soon as we went out to work in the afternoon, he'd pop right back up. Little furball. 
He'd get into stuff. He'd get into a briar sometimes and get grass burrs all over him. Sometimes he'd get into grease and he'd be a mess. And whenever he did, he'd come back looking horrible, all mangled and mangy. Sometimes he'd get in fights with animals. He'd come back bloodied and beaten to the porch and he knew there's somebody there that's going to clean him up, care for him, get him back in the game. And he was right and always would. At nights, I would go out for jogs. At the end of the day, about sunset, I'd go jog three, four, five miles. I would try to keep him at the house. And unless I tied him with a rope, I couldn't make him not come out with me. And it was so hard to run away with him tied down that I'd usually let him come, even though I knew what was going to happen. His little legs were going to give out about mile three. He couldn't possibly keep up. And so when Shorty ran with me, miles four and five, I'm carrying Shorty. And that's what we did. And then at the night, uh, at night when I'd go out into the yard and I'd lay down and just look at the stars in the Texas sky in the middle of the, the wide open ranch, was the most beautiful thing I've ever laid eyes on, he lay right next to me. And uh, I want to tell you something, I just want to ask you the question, How, you know, I, I don't know loyalty beyond Shorty's loyalty. There's nothing like it. He believed that there's somebody that loved me when I was dead, rescued me, gave me life, gave me hope, gave me purpose. I'm with him. I don't care where he calls me. Where, wherever he goes, I'm going. If I die on the way, hallelujah. I'm going. I'm with him. And his presence, in his presence, is my joy abounding. That was Shorty's little attitude. Matter of fact, my granddad would say when I left the ranch every summer, he'd stand on the porch, I mean on the end of the driveway, and he'd holler and bark and turn a little 360s. He'd be so emotionally distraught. And my granddad said for about two weeks, he would just mourn. He would lay there and whine by the back door porch. And finally, he'd sulk into the garage and kind of hibernate. And every time a truck came by, he'd go out to the end of the driveway, and he'd just be waiting to see. And when I'd come back from my spring and in my summer, when I'd come back, the moment he'd see me coming up, he could not contain his excitement. He'd turn 360s. He'd jump all over me. It was like life restored. Can I tell you what? Uh... We're, we're meant to know and love Jesus like Shorty loved me. I could see it in him. You rescue this guy, he's fully yours. It's not a thank you. It's not a, hey, let me pay off this service. and get Like he doesn't want to go anywhere else or serve any other master. He's fully indebted for life, and it's his greatest joy. The only thing he didn't want was to not be allowed to be with me. And I had the thought numerous times, I was convicted, man, I, I want to love Jesus like this little dog loves me. That's, that's how Mary loved Jesus. He delivered her, he rescued her when no one else cared, when she was the downtrodden of society, likely the prostitute, the demon-possessed woman, he delivered her. She didn't care about the cost of discipleship. She was willing to pay with her life. It was Romans 12, in view of his mercy, present your life as a living sacrifice. Mary said, what the heck else would I do? I just want to be with him. At the crucifixion, she's there. She won't leave his side. At the resurrection, she's there going, tell me where the body is. Let me just care for his body. Her delight was his presence. And you know what was also true? You know what's true? I love that little dog. Why did I love that little dog? I, could, I couldn't help it. That little dog's loyalty delighted my heart. I can only imagine how Jesus felt about Mary. That her loyalty delighted his heart. It's the same for you and I. It's meant to, that, that intimacy is meant to be ours with Christ. By the way, Mary 
common name. Magdala, common city, common woman, uncommon devotion. Why did Jesus appear first to Mary Magdalene? Because hers is the picture. Hers is meant to be the type of what it means to love and follow Jesus. Loyalty till death do us part. I've signed my life as a blank check. Her yes is on the table. Wherever he goes, whatever it costs, she's in. And so she's going to have a privilege here that no one else can ever lay claim to. Are you ready? She says they've taken him away. I don't know where she's despondent, hopeless. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Isn't that something? The first one to lay eyes on the resurrected Christ is this little woman from Magdala, Fisher's town on Galilee, who was possessed by demons living in darkness, utterly hopeless, saved by grace through faith in Christ. And her salvation was no more radical than yours and mine. And Jesus gives himself to her first. Now, she doesn't realize it. Here's another misconception. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? (laughs) This is meant to be a time of celebration. He is risen. Supposing him to be the gardener. Now, again, it's dark. She's weeping. Eyes all stained with tears. She, She thinks it's the gardener. She doesn't know. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. She just wants to be by his side. And this is so beautiful. I wish we could hear it. This is where Jesus says, verse 16, he says to her one word, Mary. And uh, I don't know the tone. I can only imagine that it was deep with affection. But I will know this. She knew when he said her name that it was his voice. You hear me on that? She knew when he said her name It was his voice. John 10 says, the sheep know the voice of the good shepherd. And when he calls them by name, they will follow him. He called her by name, Mary. She knew the voice of her good shepherd. She followed him. And she didn't just follow, she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. He says, and we know she must have thrown herself on him because he says, do not cling to me. (laughs) So she just loses it. Teacher, he's alive. She throws herself on, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is a beautiful theological truth right here. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, something has happened here. I've paid the price for your sin and mine. You who are hidden in me, here's what's now true. My righteousness has become your righteousness. This is incredible. It's the theological term imputation. What's true of me is now true of me. I'm going to my father, guess what? Your father. My God, guess what? Your God. He's saying to Mary, you are now a joint heir of the kingdom of God. You're a co-heir with me. You are a sister. You are a brother, and the kingdom is given to us. This is incredible. He's saying, Mary, don't cling to me. There's something, I've only understood. Yes, overwhelmed with emotion, Christ is risen, I get it. But let me physically go, because in the new covenant, 
I'm going to be with you in a way that's altogether better. You're not gonna have to be like Shorty, seeing me leave and then just awaiting for my return. Mourning until you get my physical presence. No, 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 no. I'm gonna give myself to you. John 14 and following. I won't go away and leave you as orphans. I'm gonna send you my spirit. Let me ascend, Mary. I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. There's no more going away. I'll be with you. Jesus' own words. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You'll have me always. What was Mary's hope? What was Shorty's hope? When he was with me, he's wheeling and dealing. Didn't matter what we're doing. He's with the one who's loved and rescued him. Same with Mary. Jesus says, this is better, Mary. This is better. You have been declared righteous. It's done. It is finished. You're mine. I'm yours. I'm going to give you my spirit. Here's the deal. My spirit will be a deposit. It'll guarantee you of an assurance of what's to come. It'll guarantee you the inheritance that's coming that is yours in me. It's a guarantee. You'll never have to wonder, did he really rise? Is it really true? You're going to have me alive in you, quickening you to the truth of yes. He's alive. He's alive in you. You'll feel my presence. You'll hear my voice. When you read my word, you'll be able to interpret it. We, we visited Miss Lolita this week. We visited on Tuesdays as a staff. Some of the folks that haven't been able to come out to worship because of the medical conditions and the pandemic and and we miss them. And so we've been visiting on Tuesdays and we just go, we sing hymns and we pray for them. And Miss Lolita, whom I know we all miss, she would only be sitting right over here in this service and she'd be saying amen to truths from the scripture. And every once in a while she'll throw in there, help him Lord, which is extremely concerning if you're the pastor. But we miss Miss Lolita, we hear her. Um, she loves Jesus so much. And we were praying for her and her husband and we had some of our young interns there. And I said, Miss Lolita, do you have a word for these young women, these young men? just so young, wet behind the ears, serving in ministry in their first ever ministry job. She said, yes. She said, this is the very word of God. <laughs> so I'm 80 years old. I'll tell you, the word of God is the lock and the Holy Spirit is the key. You put the, you read the word with the power of the spirit and you're not gonna have religion. You're gonna have a relationship with Christ. Amen. That's what Jesus is saying to Mary, the whole thing has changed. Don't cling to me. What's mine is yours. You're a joint heir. I'll send you the Spirit. You'll never have to be without me. You've got an assurance that will just plow through all of the daily discouragements of life under the sun. It's hot under the sun. It's hard under the sun. But know this, I'm alive. I'm alive in you. There's a kingdom coming. And in the meantime, I love it. He doesn't leave her with nothing to do. Just hang in there. He says, go tell the brethren. And Mary Magdalene went, and she has the privilege of being the first one to announce it. She says what we get to spend our life saying, I have seen the Lord. And she shared all the things he had shared with her. Mary had an incredible purpose. He said, Mary, go make disciples of all nations. You go tell the world that I'm alive. And there's going to be a season of grace where men and women can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. They can repent of their sin and trust in me. There's a time where salvation will go forth to the ends of the earth, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And then I will come again. And when I do, there will be judgment. And then there will be, there will be a siphoning of the wheat and the tares. And those who are truly mine will receive a glorified body to enjoy intimacy with me and one another for all of eternity. Go and tell them. Share the good news. 
And you know what happens to me? You know what happens to us? We get so distracted with the temporal, what's going on around us, the election, the pandemic, these aren't small things, but the earthly things. And our sights kind of drift down. And some feel discouragement. Some feel depressed. And that's natural. Unless you're experiencing something supernatural. And that is in the midst of your hopelessness that there's a voice. And that voice happens to know your name. And that voice in the midst of our distress and distraction, that voice says, Mary. That voice says your name. And that voice doesn't say, hey, listen, you're not going to have any more problems. We're going to fix those tomorrow. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is the gospel that just says you're known. Lift your sights. Remember who I am, that I'm alive, and that you've got a mission in me. Lift your sights. Go tell the world I'm alive. And that mission overwhelms our fears and our insecurities and our discouragements and we have life and peace and an abounding hope in Christ. And we live our lives on mission for him. And I tell you what, Mary is a type, a shadow of what a Christian is meant to be. Hopeless and distressed and confused and not understanding any theological construct of the resurrection. Until the voice of the good shepherd calls her name. And what happened? She had ears to hear, and she had eyes to see Jesus. And her hopelessness dissolved, and she was filled with a great, uh, unbreakable hope. And with that hope, what did she receive? A word of encouragement. Mary, what's mine is yours. You're not empty-handed. My God is your God. My Father is your Father. You've won the victory of Christ is your victory. This is not a time to weep. Dry the tears. This is a celebration. Go and tell the good news. And her hopelessness is gone. And she's alive. One of my favorite mission stories, I've told it once or twice in, in here, but probably some of you weren't here, so I'll say it again. And one of my first out-of-the-country mission trips about 15 years ago. I went to the, the island of Madagascar. It's not just a movie. It's a real place. And um, although the animals are not speaking. Uh, went there and um, uh, ministered to uh, pastors and evangelists from all over the island. They, ga- they came. They traveled most on foot. Um, they gathered at this conference to uh, teach our job and our privilege was to teach the Word of God, uh, uh, a survey of the whole Bible, and um, discipleship lessons, and um, what it meant to make disciples. And so one of the guys showed up actually the first morning. We're about halfway through a three-hour training, and this, this guy comes in, and he's got a crutch, and he's, uh, his leg, one leg is just totally emaciated, and his foot's curled under, so he has obviously a, a, uh, a, a, a handicap. And he, he has his crutch, and he crutches into his seat. And I found, find out later, he's been walking for six days from the town, he, which others told me would be about a two-day walk if you were capable. But in his condition, it was about a week, a week's walk. And he had arrived that morning midway through our first session. Uh, he would always lag 
and we would walk from place to place to, to do teaching. And so I began to kind of lag back with him just to talk to him. His name was Dasise. We called him Dasi for short. And uh, I found out that he, uh, he was the evangelist of his village. And I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't know if that was like a vocation. And he basically shared with me, he was the only Christian in his village. Um, God had saved him. He'd come to him through a vision. Uh, Christ had got a hold of his life through a vision. Now he was learning the truth of God's word. Everything was coming alive. But his village practiced witchcraft. And um, from the time he was a baby, they considered him to be cursed because of a common disease that could be cured with the Americanized medicine we have. It would be like a polio. I mean, it wouldn't have even, uh, it would have been cured. But they didn't have that. They said he was cursed. And the Lord had revealed to him that he was not a curse, that he was meant to be the one that revealed to them that they're all cursed apart from the love and salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. He had gotten word miraculously through someone else that there were those coming to teach the Bible. Uh, Dasi did not know the word of God. He literally had a little backpack. All he had was a Bible in it that he had been given by my friend uh, who was a missionary there and a mosquito net. And every night he, he laid in that mosquito net on the ground outside and he was uh, soaking up everything would teach him about, about the word of God in his Bible. And I was moved by this man, as you might imagine. I was just moved. I just... I was humbled. I was in awe. I mean, this is some radical stuff. And uh, this impoverished man, emaciated with nothing, one leg, walking six days to be there with his mosquito net. And um, I've kept up with him 15 years. Uh, We've got a friendship. I love supporting his ministry. He's since gotten married. He has a handful of children by God's grace. His village has experienced a revival. There are many that are Christians through his testimony. Well, at the end of our time, we had a prayer ceremony, we're hugging, we're kind of getting on this uh, cart to be driven away, and most of them are uh, there to kind of wave us off. And I noticed Dossie's kind of crutching himself up the hill, just the dirt road that goes off into the countryside, and I hollered out, I said, Dossie, I said, what are you doing? And we, we had really become close. And he turned around and he said, I'm going. <laughs> And I said, oh, where are you going? And he said, out there. I said, what what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to tell them that he's alive. And he was just just beaming. And he turned, and I I will have engraven in my memory forever, Dossie limping away into the countryside to tell the world Jesus is risen. There's hope for the hopeless. Hey, it's not just for Mary. It's not just for Dossie. Do you know in November the 14th in a divided nation in the midst of a global pandemic, there is hope for you and I because of the resurrection truth that he's alive and he's alive in me, he's alive in you, and he knows your name. And right now, you know what you need to hear? Why don't you go ahead and close your eyes? Here's what you need to hear. In the midst of confusion, frustration, discouragement, you need to hear your Savior's voice. And you need to hear his voice call your name. And you and I need to lift our sights to realize that a great salvation has taken place. And it's my salvation. It's yours. And we have hope eternally secured because Jesus Christ is alive. And our privilege 
like Mary's. We don't get to be first, but we get to announce the good news. Father, I pray that you would enliven us this morning. We're entering winter on our calendar. The days will likely get colder. The nights will get longer. I don't know how long the division in our country will last. I don't know how long the pandemic will last. I know there are struggling marriages in our body. I know there are uh, people that we know and love dying from COVID, from other things. I know that it's easy to be overwhelmed with discouragement. We need to hear your voice. Call us by name, and that alone, that reminds us that we are known by you, that we are your sheep. You have called us by name. Now, we have the privilege of hearing your voice, that you have made us alive in Christ, that we are hidden in him, that the eternal security of our soul is done. It is finished. Uh, We are secure, and that our life is meant to have an overwhelming joy and a purpose, that we know the risen Lord, and that we announce he's alive and he's coming. Lord, may we be consumed with that purpose. May we be uh, satisfied in the peace of your presence. I just think of Shorty. He just wanted to be with me. Let us, let our craving and longing to be with you overwhelm that which discourages us and remind us of the joy we have that you went away and you sent your spirit to comfort us, that we are not orphans. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.